Nick! Hey, Steve, how you doing? Not too bad, how are you? Uh, happy Saturday morning, Steve. Yeah, it's a breakfast podcast, We're Nick. here in Salisbury, Steve. We just had croissants, I've haven't we? croissants, I've got my dog by my feet. Yeah, and Steve's got a new dog. Yeah, Ripley. Ripley the dog. Yeah, she's cute, isn't she? It's kind of more like a sort of large rat. <laughs> or a pig. <laughs> or a pig, like yeah, a, like more a, like, like a Like a truffle pig. Like a mini pig. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's lovely to be here. So we're broadcasting this morning, as I said, from Salisbury. It's a beautiful morning. We've got a, a lively set featuring um, another album, Steve, haven't we? Yeah, we're doing a Led Zeppelin album this week, Nick. So if you don't know, listeners, we, this is uh, Science Vinyl. So the aim of this podcast is to, we go back in time and pick an album. <laughs> usually a, a meaningful or album that me and Steve like or that is um, in some ways notable um, and then we go through the track listing talk a little bit about the record um, some of the events going on at the time of the record and more importantly we talk about the science surrounding the tracks <laughs> don't we Steve let's get on with it so grab a beer and have a bath with some tunes inside my head. Relax and try and have a laugh with the boys from in the shed. Oh, science final. So, Steve, what album have we got this week? We're doing Led Zeppelin this week. The Led Ze- Zeppelin. And which Led Zeppelin is the it? The fourth album. The fourth Led album. Led Zeppelin 4. Famously untitled. It's not officially called Led Zeppelin 4. In fact, yeah. there's no writing of any kind on the record it's quite, sleeve. It's quite ballsy, isn't it? it? It's quite ballsy. At the time, I think Led Zeppelin were of the opinion that they'd been overhyped, so they wanted to bring the hype down. There's not even the kind of catalogue number of the record. Oh, is that it. true? Yeah, it's totally blank. I love um, the fact, imagine in, in that. In terms just... of um, font, there's, there's obviously a couple of pictures on there. But... Carry on, Steve. Sorry, listeners, that's my dog who's currently sitting in our podcasting equipment. So Steve thought it wise to bring his dog with him this weekend. <laughs> to so record dog, sound. To record, for a sound recording. So, listeners, over the course of this podcast, you will notice some unidentified sound. <laughs> Grunting, snorting, slobbering, yeah. scratching around. And only most of those. That's are unfortunately Nick. Steve, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into that one. All right. Anyway, Led so he's, he's in the room. So, yeah, Led Zeppelin 4. So, this album, so it was released in um, back in 1971. 71. And 71. Do you want to know what's going on in the world? In we decimalised in 1971. Correct. Um, else you can remember? That's probably about all I can think about. Yeah, what Oak. was going on in the world in 1971? Well, BBC Open University started no on, way. on the TV. Yeah, so uh, on it. So. Well, but probably you had to just stay up late then because there were no recorders. I like, don't there was know. No because VCRs in 71, was there? Open University was also on in the daytime. Right, um, okay. I don't know whether BBC Two was around in 71, but they used to play it on BBC Two because I remember there were programmes, the sex education programmes sometimes I'd come across when I was ill. <laughs> <laughs> few other things happened in that year. Yeah, go on then. Yeah, so all the restrictions on gold ownership were lifted. What? 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 Up until 1971 in the UK, you, you needed a licence to hold more than four gold coins. You needed a licence? You needed a licence up until 1971. Well, you had to apply and say, I've got, I've got gold in my house. I think house. so, yeah. And what was the rationale behind that? I don't know, Steve, but anyway, they abolished that in 1971, so it ceased to matter anymore. So, didn't so you have could have get, as much gold as you, you like. As much gold as, as you much like. As much gold as I could eat. 
Yeah, Thatcher stole the milk in 71. Ah, oh, bitch. Yeah, yeah. From the children. She stole it from the children's mouths. She did, she did. Britain became... Um, and Britain began EEC membership. That's topical. Oh, Started God. proceedings, and the EEC agreed terms for us to enter the European Economic Area <laughs> in 1971. It's only taken 50 years to undo that. Back, yeah. yeah, a lot of other things. Um, the album "Who's Next" was released by Who. Spaghetti Junction was opened. Um, chap won the Nobel Prize called Dennis Gabor. Have you heard of Dennis Gabor? Gabor Steve? sounds familiar. I don't know why. He invented the holographic method. So ah. for holograms. Blue Peter buried a time capsule in 1971 to be opened in the distant year of the year 2000. Oh, no way. Do you know what was in it? What was in it? They opened it and it had hairs from Goldie the Blue Peter dog. Okay, that's a pretty shit thing to bury. A recording of the program's theme tune arranged by Mike Oldfield. Right. And video footage of the moving of Petra's statue. Isn't that amazing? They must when they opened that. that when they the, opened that, they, were, they must have been like, "Oh my oh god, god, what's going to be in it?" Around for thirty years. The hairs of a long dead dog. Who <laughs> <laughs> thought that was a good idea? So they planted another one in 1998. Do you know what was in that one? Uh, no. Was Teletubby it? dolls. Gosh. An insulin pen. Right. And a football from France '98. What do you think? They're not putting much in these time capsules, are they? You can really cram them in there. You can put yourself like a 32 gig uh, like SD memory card in there. Loads of info. Yeah. Anyway, the other interesting, exciting thing that happened in 1971, of course, was Led Zeppelin. The fourth album from Led Zeppelin was released. Um, it's not really got a proper name, although it has been called over the years Four Symbols because of the symbols on it, on the yeah. cover. The fourth album, Untitled, Runes, The Hermit, and probably most firm, famous is Zoso. Uh, it's it's the third biggest selling album in the US ever. Wow. It's sold over 37 million copies worldwide. Do you think that's just because Stairway to Heaven's on it? I think that's partly part of it as well. Yeah. Obviously, there were no singles, so all of the... It's um, awesome to think they, just, they never released the a, single, no. a, sing, a single ever. Never. Isn't that... Like... Incredible. Anyway, there's eight tracks on the album... They're an interesting collection of titles. We're going to storm through them, so why don't we get on with it and start sciencing up Led Zeppelin 4. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move Gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove Nick, you're off. Number one, Black Dog. It's a great track. Black Dog. Look, I've got a Black Dog. I'm going to show Steve a picture for Steve now. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Black Dog is my favourite track to run to. Is it? Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Because there's a a really good uh, cadence to start off with. Oh, is there? Yeah. You run fast then. Look look at Steve. I'm showing you a picture. Yes, a Black Dog. What does it look like? It looks like a fox. It it, It looks like a black fox. It is a fox. Okay. (laughs) But a fox is famously a type of dog. Okay. It's in the same... uh, same family. Uh-huh. Do you know why I'm showing you this picture of a black dog? Why are you showing me a picture dog? of a black dog? Well, this is kind of... Some, some of our listeners will, have, will be aware of this story, but it's become a little bit more topical recently. Have you heard of the, um, the breeding experiment of silver foxes yeah, in the it, US in the 1950s, 60s, 70s? It's continuing to this day. This is the one where they, they breed out all of their like, aggressive t- tendencies in a very short uh, life cycle number, correct? 
So what they've done is they took a bunch of these dogs. This is in Russia, is it right? Russia. Yeah. Yeah, the city is called Novosibirsk. Right. So it's somewhere in in Siberia. And basically, um, the chap who started it had lost his job because of Lysenkoism. Have you heard of Lysenkoism? No, what's that? So in Soviet Russia, in Stalin era, genetics was seen as bourgeois. So it wasn't, it didn't fit with the communist manifesto. Genetics? Yeah. Because it's Mendelian inheritance of genetics. Like, you know, yeah, like yeah. Mendel, yeah, 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 you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah. So they had more of an emphasis on Lamarckianism. Right. So they thought they could improve quality through changes of environment during the course of life. So there was a chap called Lysenko, famously had no scientific education, became head of like science in Russia. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, so they had like a purge. So a lot of people got killed, basically sent to the gulags and died. Normally when you say purge, it, people people lose their jobs. It's a bit different here, isn't it? If you're getting, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's purges and there's purges. Yeah. But anyway, the chap who, he lost his job in the Department of Fur Animal Breeding. Obviously, they were trying to breed animals for fur. And he set up this institute in um, Novosibirsk. And basically, he thought he could show um, domestication process of domestication in wild animals we took this wild animal the silver fox mm. russian wild animal otherwise you know there's no tame right. anyway and this particular breed what did and the fox say what what did the fox say <laughs> something like that i don't know okay <laughs> i don't know what noise they make <laughs> famously foxes in the uk sound yeah. like babies don't they That's yeah. something like that <laughs> I don't know what this one's about. Anyway, so they they got these foxes in captivity, and they success like you say they successively bred together the ones which appeared more tame, so the ones which would approach handlers. And basically, so did they start off with a load of different foxes, or was it what? Or was it? Yeah, they yeah, started, okay. and they they categorized them into they they called them elite elite foxes were the super domesticated ones. You know, right. you could pet them basically. So they just like had like ten foxes, and like that one's quite nice, and doesn't try and. I don't know how many they started with, but it would have been in the tens. I would have yeah, thought. Okay. And they bred them together, and by the tenth generation, eighteen percent of the fox pups were like domesticated, and by the twentieth, it was thirty-five percent. And now, in that population, seventy to eighty percent of them are elite, so they're tame foxes. I'll show you a picture of one of them. Do you want to see a picture of yeah. a tame fox? Can you have one as a Look pet? That. Look at that. Oh, that's so cute. It, lo- it looks like a looks like a pet. <laughs> Hello, I used to be a fox dog. Now I'm a friendly dog. Can I say another laugh? It's cute. what he's doing. We'll post this. He's a cute little white. He's, so just to describe it, he's like a white furball. Anyway, a famous other pattern is this. They, they also noticed, apart from the, the the acquisition of these tame phenotypes, you know, not being frightened, being cuddly, submissive towards humans. Yeah. They, they in parallel, develop these other characteristics. So white fur rather than black fur they get speckled fur patterns in the fur so there's no there's no reason there's no reason behind that it's just a byproduct of what one of the things oh, this is for. the interesting thing yes yeah, right. so they seem to be inherited together also things like shortened snout the teeth become smaller did i say floppy ears yeah no, no yeah no, you didn't say floppy, floppy ears, floppy heard. ears they get floppy ears and, and they're less pointy aren't they they become more less rounded. pointy and they get sort of non-seasonal estrus cycles so they can breed out of season basically That's so weird and also they behave in a more... Ju- they basically behave- they look more juvenile, look more puppies. Yeah. It's like if you select dogs, you know, they start to have defects in other parts of the body. If they're good at right, like, sniffing yeah. out a bird, Same with you like can't thor- avoid having the sort of... Things, yeah. That sort of thing, yeah. You, you, you know, it's... They're kind of part and parcel. Doing it artificially over short 
chain, you know, short yeah. generations, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna end up with weak phenotypes as well. Yeah. So our phenotype as humans is quite robust because it's good at surviving. So if you start to try and piss around with it too much, you know, it doesn't function in the same way. You're going. But we, I mean, I suppose you could you could look at humans <coughs> maybe. Like you could look at, I don't know, take athletes or something, or something like that, where people have, you know, successfully uh, um, been athletic in their family and married into other athletes. You could look, probably not as many generations. It probably doesn't work. No, I mean the key thing is in societies now is we've got so much medicine, so things that would have killed us before now aren't killing us. So we will certainly have um, weakened immune systems. I think so. Over long. Steve Jones, famous geneticist, kind of always. complains about this he got in trouble didn't he you're saying that you know basically all of the, the snowflake generations are doomed because we we have had no we had no se- selection yeah. so because we're not we're not selecting on people being strong and robust and well we we're, we're actually it's passing onto our brain so we, we've, we've evolved these complex societies so our brains have been able to find ways to arrange the environment to make chemicals which do the job otherwise so mm. we become reliant on the sort of the groups like ants in the you know, you can't have one ant. It's not yeah. very good. But in the, in the nest, it's fucking mental. And it's the same with humans. You know what in I mean? the nest, it's fucking we've, mental. We've, we've evolved to live in these complex societies. <laughs> so if, if it all comes crashing down, so maybe, maybe with Trumpism, then we're maybe, in trouble. Maybe podcasts are just a natural byproduct of that then. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything you see around you that's man-made is just a, a corollary of evolution. Yeah. Anyway, there you go, Steve. There's Black Dog. We, we wow, started off a, with a, a Led Zeppelin <laughs> song. <laughs> And we've come back at the end, back to Black Dog, which is a rocking track. Black Dog. Rock and roll, Nick. Rock and roll! What's the study of rocks called? Geology. Or? Rockology. <laughs> Lithology. <laughs> uh, and then if you took two rocks and they rolled together, what would the study of that be called? Dilithography. No, good guess though. Tribology is the study of two things of two things rubbing Oh together. yeah, study of friction. Yeah, yeah, so that's the study of of the rocks rolling. What would that be? Of the rocks rolling. Yeah, of the study of movement. Dirtribology. <laughs> Kinesiology, which is sometimes which that's is, like the no. thing when you roll them on your body and you have a woman in a leotard and <laughs> everyone gets happy. <laughs> no, so sometimes there's two kind of classes of that. One of those just <laughs> refers to the physics of movement, and the other one is also about the science of the body moving. What's it called again? Kinesiology. That's the one with the hot rocks and the woman in the. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um, get another one. What about um, uh, how about uh, agnot- agnotology? What do you think that is? Agnotology. Yeah. The study of four rocks. No. What? Study of ignorance of the rocks, not the rocks, just in general. <laughs> A couple of other ones. Two more to go. Uh, pognotology. Do you know what that is? No. It's relevant to us both today. Pognotology is it the study of croissants? The study of beards. Oh. And finally, (laughs) finally, uh, uh, dystatology. No idea. It's the study of the purposelessness of nature. Oh, I like that one. Say that one again. Dystatology. Oh, can you do a degree in that? Uh, Probably somewhere. (laughs) Well, Steve, that was fascinating. Hope you pronounced those right. Probably not. Rock and roll. 
Battle of Evermore, is infinity possible, Steve? Infinity? Is it possible? What, what infinity do you mean, Nick? Well, that's a good point. <laughs> what are you saying when you ask that question? Well, there's multiple types of uh, infinity. Are there? there? I didn't know this. Uh, yeah. Can you explain to me? So no, I, I really to... can't. Um, <laughs> there's So, yeah, no, so basically I can't do this. And I've had mathematicians try and explain it to me. So, so the idea is if you take, I know, like pi. So pi is an irrational number, so it goes on forever. Yeah. Right? And it never repeats as far as we can tell. Yeah. Um, so that says pi is like 3.145 and whatever. Yeah. And then the numbers just go on. They go on forever and, and they ever just keep and, ever. It, and no pattern ever emerges. Exactly. Whereas if you set, it never repeats or anything. No. So we call that an irrational number. And so that's a metric. So we can say, okay, well, does it go on for infinity? Does it go on forever? Yeah. And in, and in maths, you could say that there's. Uh, there's a very brief definition of, of infinity, which, I, which I've never really understood, but the argument goes something like this. It says, if you count to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, count as high as you can go, that's one infinity, right? Yeah. And then, But of course, between 1 and 2, there's an infinite number of gradations. You can have 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. And so therefore, what that first infinity can't be, must be smaller than the second infinity, because the second infinity by itself has subdegrades. Anyway, it's a terrible argument, but that's the one that's always used to explain. So it's set theory, and it's integers without a fraction make up one. You've just explained exactly. Ah, oh, nailed it. <laughs> without a fraction, make up an infinite set that is countable. In the hand, real numbers, which include fractions and irrational numbers, yeah. such as the square root of two or pi, yeah. are part of another infinite set that is uncountable. So, it's just, so it's one just set's countable, one set's it's incountable. A terrible argument, though. I just. But there's two. There's two like camps, and this is why I was thinking battle of evermore. Ah, no. Nice. Because there's people have a massive argument about it. But what, um, what's the two? Yeah. Well, one of the guys is a I chap. Oh, I can imagine the nerds getting together. Funny, no, no, no. There's <laughs> <laughs> a set theorist, and he says, mm, and he's talking about his own people. These people in set theory strike us, even in math, are sort of strange. <laughs> I oh, know that's so what we did. So, that's so, Strogatz. That's a chap who's not in set theory. These people in set theory strike us, even in math. So sorry, which so set theory are the people that say that pi is a different infinity? I don't even know. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think they, I think they're the people who ponder the question. Okay, basically set theorists. Yeah, I bet yeah, they have yeah, yeah. rocking parties. Anyway, no one really understands what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, pi, I mean, pi, for instance, is quite quite interesting. So, um, because it's like a thing, it's the all it is is the ratio between the diameter of the circle or the radius and its circumference. That's, it's, that's right. It's just that's the it. ratio of the two things. So it's totally comprehensible. Yeah. You can draw it on a bit of paper. Yeah. But if you try and write it down, you'd be there forever. Yeah. It's cool. Oh, that messes with my brain. Anyway, there's a battle for more, Steve. Good. With flames from the dragon of darkness to some light and No, no, stairway. no stairway denied. Den- <laughs> God. Stairway to heaven. Bit of 1990s. A, uh, yeah. Um, Wayne's World. Yeah, stairway to heaven. Stairway to heaven. That's a big gun, isn't it? It's a big gun. I mean, if you had that in your arsenal, you wouldn't know where to put... I mean, track four is probably a good place to put I it. I think Stairway to Heaven's that. It's all right. Oh, 
dude, it's like one of it's the most right. biggest selling and recognizable songs of all time. It's okay. Just because it's not a Rush. If Rush had released Stairway. Well, Rush just ripped it off multiple times <laughs> did in they the really? mid to late 70s. Yeah, of course they did. Rush would definitely be uh, a bit derivative of Led Zeppelin for a while. Um, well, isn't everyone, Nick? Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, there's worse bands to be derivative of. Absolutely. So I was thinking about a stairway to heaven. Were you? Kind of. Oh, this thing makes me think there's an Arthur C. Clarke specifically about this. Uh, yeah. Like a lift, a space lift. I'm going to talk to you about the space oh. lift. So First conceived of probably by Arthur C. Clarke. It wasn't, came, no. Wasn't it? No. So, so the idea is this, well, we're talking about space lift or a space elevator is the term that's used in the in the literature a lot, right? Yeah. So this idea that you could have a uh, lift, you just pop in a lift like you're going to the you know going going upstairs in a in in, a, in an office block, but you could go all the way to outer space. And the idea would be that you, you would typically do this in geosynchronous orbits, so the uh, the um, tether. You can imagine if you imagine standing on a um, uh, on a, on a roundabout, you know, like a roundabout as, as a kid. Yeah. And if you know, you know, when you like the, the bigger the roundabout, the further you got towards the edge, the more force, the more centripetal force you felt, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw you off, right? So there's a trade-off between the further you go away, how much force is felt, the, the lateral force, and also, but the, uh, um, but you don't, you, the, the shorter, the, the, the further you get away from the rotation position, uh, the less, the, the less rope you need and the less strong it needs to be. So there's a trade-off there between the length and the, and how strong the material is to take us up into space. Right. And this is basically the problem with the space elevator, right? So, like, if you build a really long one, it yeah. has to be amazingly strong. It has to be really strong because you could imagine it's... Because the world's twisting. Yeah, yeah, And the yeah. longer... The further away the elevator is from the The from acceleration the gets greater. Exactly. It has right. to go faster and faster and right. faster. But it also needs to be stronger and stronger and stronger because the Earth's pulling So as you, as you go out from the centre, you're kind of going... <laughs> Snap. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, free bird. Um, the, uh, so this first was first hypothesized in 1895 was by it? a Russian uh, scientist called Konstantin Tisiovsky. I'll probably pronounce that wrong. Yeah. He was inspired by the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Uh, was, there was a paper in Science in 1961. Oh, yeah. Um, called, I've got it here. It's called Satellite Elongation into a True Skyhook, right? It's from Science. Right. Published in Science. Uh, and the, <laughs> there's a, there's, it's unusual for Science at this time. I had a look at others. There's a, little, there's a little letter from the editor. So think about it, right? Science is a very reputable scientific journal. Uh, people are ringing it. And then someone writes and thinks, I'm going to make a lift that goes into space. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Like, no science is done anyway. So, so there's a little edit note from the editor at the beginning here that says, The authors have made a very interesting suggestion in this paper. One referee described the skyhook as a delightful idea and a grandiose scheme for a future technology. However, the reviewers were concerned about problems of stability and felt that this might make the skyhook impractical. <laughs> <laughs> the majority recommended that we uh, accepted this paper in spite of their reservations. <laughs> That's from the editor. Anyway, they go through and they talk about the problem of it, and then also they, they do they do some calculations to work out the tensile strength. So that's the, the strength in tension. Yeah, yeah. So this is to go to a place where there's microgravity or zero gravity. Basically. Well, yeah. So the idea is, yeah, because that was what you'd want. You'd want to get outside this sort of gravitational field of the Earth. Exactly, it? or at least a long way towards it. So which is you, which is thirty. If you get up to the top of the lift, then you can just pootle off 
from whatever direction you like. Exactly. Without using any so power. So it's very, there's been a later study that looked into this and found out. So typically it costs about $10,000 a kilogram to take stuff into space. Or it did at the time. It's not that much. No, it's got, it's come down, right? So but you can like, if I wanted to wang a bag of sugar into space, I could pay someone 10 grand. Yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> the science shed can wang a bang the sugar. sugar. We'll be the like, little, little logo of the science shed floating it off into into space. We'd be like um, that twat. What's he called? Um, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. But, they, but okay. But anyway, they said with a with a space elevator, you could do that for about a hundred times less, right? Okay. Anyway, so the, the distance to put it into geostationary orbit, which is higher than the than the um, the International Space Station. Yeah, the International Space Station is pretty low. Yeah, it's falling out of the sky, basically. Because it goes really fast if you watch it. I've seen it yeah. many times. Salisbury is very dark here. So it's and th- it zooms across. You can see, so it's three thousand, sorry, thirty-five thousand, thirty-five thousand seven hundred eighty-six kilometer altitude. Is, thirty-five thousand. Yeah, which is which is um, <coughs> geosynchronous orbit. So that's so where the moon. Just to give you something, so the moon's about probably about three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand kilometers, I think. Something like something that. Like yeah. That. yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so that, that's kind of the distance it needs to be um, away. So that then uh, there was that, then there was a follow-up paper by a guy called Jerome Peterson, uh, who said, okay, but can we can we do can we get round this problem of of tension by having a counterweight? So can we? So just like we do in a normal lift, but you said, but this way the counterweight would go further out, and we'd use the, the we'd have a really big honking great lit uh, counterweight. That would counterbalance the um, the. Um, but that would sort of get dragged along in some kind of really wonky way. Yeah, he said it. Would, it will take. You'd uh, have to be rigid. It, but the counterweight would have to go halfway to the moon, and he seriously proposed this, right? Yeah. Would uh, uh, eighty-nine thousand miles, uh, and would take hundreds of shuttle shuttle trips to to, to create. So, so you'd have like an extra moon, basically, to which the other end. Just around, security. like just throwing. Why don't you just tie it to the moon? <laughs> Because the moon's not in geosynchronous orbit. So then oh, yeah, yeah. You'd have well, to you'd change have, the orbit yeah, but then, of the moon. But then on the ground, you could have like a rail. So that the bottom <laughs> so rail... Yeah, just like every, one day per month or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> anyway, they, this, this paper went through and they worked out the, the, the tensile strength that you would need. And then they... In this, this paper from the 60s. And then they, they, they put it again. So tensile strength is measured in gigapascals until it fractioned. Yeah. Um, and uh, then they went through all of the stuff that existed at that time. Quartz, diamond, alumina, uh, beryllium, that all had their highest, you know, um, theoretical strengths, uh, tensile strengths. And they, they surmised at the end of that paper, you'll like this, this is a great question, uh, that, that basically the materials don't exist. And the, so they were thinking about... Not even spiders' webs. No, not even spiders. Not, not even close. Not even close. So they were saying... Um, so they were about <clears throat> half the way there. The strongest material at the time was about half the way there. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it have to be, like, the same on the ground as well, to have it sticking in the ground? Well, actually, what they do is they have... Um, it's it's tapered. Oh, right. so, so it has to be stronger at the top right, than it does okay. at the bottom. So you could just make it one honky That's weird, because the force would just still be... No, think about mutant. it. As you get further away on the, on the roundabout... The force, the lateral forces get bigger. Yeah, you get feel like you get as you get further and further away in the roundabout, the more you want to be flung off the roundabout. Yeah, but all of the force is going through the rod, which is connecting you to the middle. So, yeah. like just by simple Newtonian. No, but, but if you but if you imagine as it's going up, so if it's V-shaped, yeah, like uh, uh, it's integrated along that whole length of the of the of the cable. Right. So so when you're at low level, of course, it's not felt. This. The, the, the strength of the of the big counterweight is not felt by the short by the by the distance that's short from the earth. Right. So actually, what you do, you can have it tapered. So oh, it can right. work. It I don't be, get that. It needs to be about a kilometer a, a, a kilometer across at the top. They right. worked out. 
Okay. Anyway, so this is the last bit of that paper that the, that the editor didn't like. It said, the installation from a revolving and rotating body is, a, is an ordinarily subject to two choices of the mo modulus operandi. The analysis is much more complex. Modus operandi. Modus operandi, sorry. <laughs> and the analysis is much more complex. <laughs> that was the, that's how they chose to, to finish the paper. Mm. Anyway, so... Um, so, so I was like, okay, well, now we've got loads of new, new, new stuff, haven't we? We've got new, new, new complicated materials. Surely we've made something that's, that's strong enough. So the, the magic number apparently is 80 gigapascals, right? right? So there is, uh, so carbon uh, graphene is stronger, is, has a higher tensile strength. Uh, we can't build a chunk of graphene yet, but there's a paper where you can measure it. That's still the highest ever recorded tensile strength. Um, and recently, literally this year in Nature Nanotechnology, there's a, there's a paper uh, published by Fei Wei, um, who uh, is, works in China, called Carbon Nanotube Bundles with Tensile Strengths Over 80 Gigapascals. Wow. So, so they've made to like weight, we've got uh, carbon nanofibers. So, so, so we at the have moment, a space lift very soon then. Well, yeah, a stairway to heaven. Right, Steve, so we're going to go on a misty mountain hop next. Oh, interesting. I want to bring you back to our old friends at the University of Leicester and their BSc and MSc in Interdisciplinary Sciences. Do you remember? They've got a couple of journals. Oh, the uh, Journal of Physics Special Topics. Well, there's that one, but there's another one. Ah, oh, there's more! It's called the Journal of Interdisciplinary Science Topics. Sounds like a wicked module. I like yeah. want to make this module. Yeah, we should It do basically it. tries to get them to students, undergrads, to think up how to publish. So if anyone hasn't thing. heard that, all of our Science Vinyl <laughs> listeners, you should go back and listen to the Science Shed Season 1. And there's a couple of references. There's wacky papers about how whether Batman could fly and whether Superman could... How fast he would have to go to reverse the the rotation of the Earth and things. It's fantastic, fantastic idea. And the idea is that, that as, as Nick just explained, is that... the, the that what, you, know, you take a silly idea but write about it in a very scientifically correct and accurate way. So this is exactly the similar type of journal but here they were looking at the science of Lord of the Rings. Amazing. So I was thinking of Misty Mountain. What? Well first of all they wanted to work out how much the fellowship would have to eat <laughs> of Lembus bread to get... Isn't Lembus bread super dense though or something? Is well that... according to Legolas yeah. in the, it, it, it's said to keep a traveller on his feet for a day of long labour. Okay. And also, um, one small bite is enough to fill the stomach of a grown man. Okay, so, you know, it's probably, what, a thousand calories or something. Don't know, but first of all, before they even calculated, you know, started to make some assumptions, yeah. they thought, well, we have to think out the, what the, what's the metabolic rate of a hobbit and an elf compared to a person. I'd say an elf slightly higher. Well, actually, an elf they thought was lower because they, they modelled it on a herbivore, a type of deer. <laughs> they thought it was chilled out. You know, sort of vegetarian, lived in the woods. Vegans. So they thought the pig could do. Do you know what they chose for a hobbit? A pig. No, a herbivorous marsupial called a southwestern pygmy possum. And they chose it due to its temperament, habitat within natural crevices, e.g. tree hollows, and varied diet, e.g. nectar and insects. Oh, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> so they good. worked it out, and they worked, by looking at the metabolic rate, they, they worked out that a hobbit would need to have seven meals a day as compared to a human three meals a day. That Why? Because it has to use energy faster. Okay, fine. Because it's smaller. Yeah. It's smaller, but consumes more calories. And right. Surface area to volume ratio. Got so it. More, all that sort of stuff. So that makes the idea of this sort of, you know, second breakfast. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, you can see yeah. why they yeah. need a second yeah. breakfast because yeah. they've got a high metabolic yeah, yeah. rate. Yeah, I like anyway, that. they worked out that they worked out for the fellowship, the nine members of the fellowship, the total calorific consumption during the ninety-two day journey would be one point seven eight million calories, kilocalories. For all, so of that them. that worked. Yeah, so they worked Does that out. Include like Boromir dying and all that. Uh, yeah, or, I don't know. Or, I don't or, know. Okay. Actually, right. yeah, good point. I don't know. Because you can say you can well, save a lot of calories. Why don't you go them. and pick holes in the paper? You could send a letter to the editor, Stu. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> anyway, they calculated so based on some million calories, based on some assumptions about the lemba spread and it filling a grown man's stomach, yeah. you know, for a whole day. They thought, well, they would need um, six hundred and seventy-five pieces of lemba spread for right. that journey. It's kind of you know it's you reasonable. can see that's yeah. reasonable, yeah. 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 It's like a backpack, seventy-five pieces each. Yeah. You could fit seventy-five lemba spread wafers into your backpack. You'd be a bit annoyed after after of only eating lemba spread for that amount of time. So about a hundred each for the hobbits, two hundred and fourteen for Gandalf. Gandalf uses a lot more. Oh no, for the humans, Gandalf, Aragorn, and Boromir—they're bigger. Right. Uh, Ninety-nine for Gimli, only sixty for Legolas. The Legolas get get by with a lot less. Jeez, (laughs) no wonder the elves are so so cool. They, they, could, also, they haven't got to spend their time eating. They can use that time to do other stuff. <laughs> and just bringing this back to the Misty Mountain Hop again, yeah. you remember in Moria? I, I don't remember Moria, but yeah. Have you read The Lord of the Rings? I have, but 20 years ago. So they go into the caves and mines of Moria. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. And there's a bit when they get attacked That's by a troll rock. cave. Yeah. Well, before the Balrog turns yeah. up, they get ambushed by orcs. Yeah. After one of them wangs something into a well. Yeah. And it awakes them. Oh, yes, I remember, yeah. And then a troll cave comes and drives his spear into Frodo against the wall. Do you oh, remember that? Oh, yeah, and he's wearing his magic... Uh, Mithril coat. Yeah, exactly. So they did some calculations about whether Frodo would... Frodo would have died. <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a troll, a cave troll, right. it's impossible for him to survive. If it had been one of the orcs, he'd be all right. Be all right but they suggest that maybe they should revise that part of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Four sticks, Nick. You know this is called why this is called four sticks. Because um, uh, Bonzo used to always break a pair of. It used to go through two sets of drumsticks when we were playing it. I think it actually used two sticks in each hand on this piece of music. Oh, really? Yeah, that's called four sticks. Yeah, he's. Um, it's anyway, got some really interesting. The weaker um, track on the album. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's got some really interesting w- weird timing. It's got six eight timing in this um, in this track apparently. It's very unusual. Um, and 7-8 as well. 7-8 yeah. unusual. Yeah. Um, oh, there you Yeah. 
Steve. Nick. Um, going to California. We've I been like to this. California. That's what I was going to ask you about. I don't yeah. actually have any science to talk about. All why right. did you decide to go to California? Because they offered me a job. Yeah, but why did you apply for a job? Oh, um, so listen, for anyone who doesn't know, Nick and I met when we were both postdocs in California. Um, I, I, when I finished my PhD, I wrote a list down of all of the people, all of the scientists I wanted to work for. And I wrote all, every single one of them emails and nearly all of them ignored me. Really? Uh, yeah. And then a few people got back to me. And one person in particular, uh, W.E. Uh, Myrna, who's a professor at Stanford, wrote back and we had, I had a job interview and he offered me a job. And I went and I had another couple of other job offers at the time and turned them all down, set sail to go, and, to, go to, the, to the sunny shores of California. So it wasn't because you spent your days with a woman unkind, smoking your stuff, drinking all your wine. You didn't that make up your mind happened. to make a new start and go to California with aching in your heart. <laughs> that wasn't the reason. Not quite, no. I think that was the reason I went. When the levee breaks. But this is the best tune it's on the such album. A tune. This is my favourite tune on this the album. Do you know? Do you know how they recorded when the levee breaks? I know, but I want you to tell me. Ah, uh, no, tell me. It's about know. all about the drum sound. Exactly. Do you know how they got the drum sound? Yeah, there was a massive haunted house somewhere in darkest Hampshire, and basically, they um, there was a and it was kind of used to be used as some kind of asylum or something, some kind of some kind of institution and basically they put the drums in this massive stairwell and he played the drums but he played the miles slower and then they sped it up and they what they did that to get this huge acoustic you're banging I, again, haven't got any science to talk about here. But did you know this song is a cover? This no, is not... It, is, is it like Roots Blues? Proper Roots, roots Blues? Roots Blues. Yeah. I've, got, I've got it. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go for it, man. Yeah. So, so actually, this, this, um, there's a great quote from it. Hold on. Let me look this up. We'll edit this in. Um, yeah, so When the Levy Breaks was originally a country blues song uh, written by Kansas Joe McCoy and Memphis Minnie. Good names, aren't they? In 1929. Um... And uh, yeah, apparently the, the um, when Led Zeppelin were recording it, uh, they you know uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant said, "Shall we do a cover of this?" Because they both they both loved it because they're both obviously big blues fans. Um, and uh, they said, "Okay, we've got to it's got to be different." So so uh, uh, Jimmy Page went away and uh, and wrote a new guitar riff. But the original version, it sounds like it's completely un. You can't tell they're the same song. Mm. Let me find it. If it keeps on raining, lavender's going to break. If it keeps on raining, lavender's going to break. And the water gonna come and I have no place to stay. Well, all that night I sat on the lever and the Well, all that night I sat on the 
my heaven If it keeps on raining Love is going to break If it keeps on raining Love is going to break And all these people Have no place to stay Anyway, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Yeah, you so it's almost really, like the song. The song's that. about the um, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, uh, when the Mississippi Delta burst its banks uh, and affected 26,000 square miles. Is that like in the Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and they're all floating around? I haven't yeah. seen the Oh Brother Where Art Thou. No. Um, yeah, I think you could almost just fade that, that, that music out. Yeah. To this week. I've been watching the Wolves. They've been, been winning the games. Have they been winning? Brilliant. Oh, mate, they won at Burnley. What's They've your... got a draw at Man United. <laughs> Did you? You must. I tell you what. You must have enjoyed Science Final this week because we're talking about someone from your neck of the woods. Oh, mate, I bloody love them. <laughs> oh, he's brilliant. Plenty. He's all losing the Molyneux. He is. He is. He is. He's he... like some kind of patron of the Wolves. <laughs> is he really? Yeah, he's always <laughs> at the games. I've seen him down the pub. Have you seen? He lives in Kinva. What um? What, what do you reckon Robert Plant has for, for a pint afterwards? Do you reckon he's a kind of pint of Banksy's, mate? 
Save your thanksies, you disappointed Banksy. Yeah, well, did you enjoy Science Friday? I bloody love Zeps, mate. You love Zeps. Love it, it's bloody great. It's <laughs> been my favourite one you've ever done. I absolutely loved it. Well, we, yeah, we, we were going to do Shaggy at one point, I'm sure. That's, that's the second Oh, <laughs> all girls around the world, all that. Love that. Exactly, yeah. So anyway, what was your, your favourite uh, track of Science Finance this week and why? I think it's going to be When the Levy Breaks, just when because it's rocking, man. It's and it's rocking. rocking. And it's at the end and all the boys are all hitting their, their instruments and they go mental. I love it. All right, well, that was Science Final and that was Led Zeppelin 4. Boston, mate! <laughs>